Well, good morning. It is good to see all of you here this morning. Those of you who do not know who I am, I, my name is Brock Bolding. I'm the children's pastor here. And it is good to be over here in big church, as we refer to it. Always good to spill over and see what's going on over here. Well, today we get to open up the Word together, but I confess that in preparing, I get uh, far more out of these times than any of you do, but such is the case as God chooses to use the imperfect to proclaim and preach the perfect. But let us just ask that the Lord would bless our time together and that He would use this time to speak to all of our hearts. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, You are indeed a great God. And we thank you so much just for this time where we could gather together to just exalt your name and to be able to learn from your word what a great and merciful God you are. So, Father, I pray right now that you will just uh, allow us to set aside all of the distractions, all of the things that would want to clutter our minds and take away from us worshiping you through this time right now. Lord, I pray that you will just... Help us all to be actively engaged and to just really learn this morning what it is you would have us learn. I thank you for every person that you have brought here, Lord. I pray that um, you will just use this message to encourage them and to strengthen them and to help them to walk in a manner that is truly worthy of their calling. Lord, we hold this up to you and we ask all this in Christ's precious name. Amen. Well, around the Boldy House, we like to play all kinds of games. Some of them are board games. Some of them, you don't even really need a board. You just need to kind of show up. And one of those games that we like to play every now and again around the Boldy Household is the game called Mercy. Now, I don't know how many of you have heard of the game called Mercy, so I will try to get you up to speed quickly as far as how the game of Mercy is played. Basically, when you play Mercy, you will face your opponent... And you will latch hands on together so that your hands are completely surrounding one another. And then on the word go, you will try to bend your opponent's hands back as far as you can so that every tendon is just aching in their hands to the point to where they just kind of crumble before you and cry out for mercy. <laughs> kind of a sadistic type of game, but... <laughs> Really, it's, it's pretty fun, at least if you're me and you're playing your kids. <laughs> it's fun kind of watching them squirm there a little bit. But please don't call protective services on me. I, I won't play it anymore, I promise. Now, I share all of this with you, not so that uh, I can get myself in all kinds of trouble or that you might think I'm some kind of sadistic father. I share this with you because I want you to get a better grasp of what mercy really is. Webster's New World Dictionary defines mercy as a refraining from a harming or punishing offenders, enemies, persons in one's power, etc. Kindness in excess of what may be expected or demanded by fairness, forbearance, and compassion. As I have stated, the game of mercy is one when either you or your opponent is brought to their knees to a place whereby the only thing that can be done is to plead for mercy The loser of this game is utterly and completely at the mercy of the victor. They are in dire straits, and the only thing that can get them out of it is to beg for mercy. And in a similar way, you and I, prior to our salvation, are in a completely hopeless and desperate situation. We have rebelled against our Maker, 
the one who has so fearfully and wonderfully made us, according to Psalm 139.14, we, so, we have sought to remove God from his throne as if we could ever really do that, but we have rebelled against him in an effort to remove him from his position so that we might be able to take it over. And then, for those of us that are saved, it happens. Our eyes become opened and we're able to see the hopelessness of our rebellion. We're able to see the foolishness of our actually striving against God. We're able to see our need for God's mercy. In a systematic theology book, Wayne Grudem says this about God's mercy. He says, God's mercy means God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. You and I were in misery and distress. We were in a place whereby we could do absolutely nothing, nothing to save ourselves from God's righteous judgment. We were in a place where we could only cry out for mercy. Some of you maybe are there right now. Maybe you haven't come to this point of realizing that you are in your efforts actually striving against God. That you are trying to rule and reign over your own life and kind of push God off to the side. And you're finding out that that is not working very well. And you are seeing that you are a person who is in need of God's mercy. Well, Ephesians 2, 1 through 5 makes this point that we are a people in need of God's mercy about as clearly as it's made anywhere in Scripture. You don't need to turn there, but just listen. It says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Now, if you're anything like me, you may have a hard time trying to distinguish the difference between God's mercy and his grace. That can be a rather difficult task to just to try to separate the nuances between them. But John Feinberg does a pretty good job of this in his uh, work entitled No One Like Him. Uh, he helps us to differentiate between the two when he writes this. He says, the concept of mercy is closely related to grace, and of course it is an expression of God's love and goodness. However, there is a significant difference between grace and mercy. Both involve unmerited favor, but the difference is that whereas grace may be given to those who are miserable and desperately in need of help, it may also be given to those who have no particular need. On the other hand, mercy is given specifically to those whose condition is miserable and one of great need. Let me see if I can kind of give you an illustration to help you kind of wrap your, your minds around the, the, the difference here. I want you to use your imagination because 
This is a pretty far-fetched type of a thing, but I want you to pretend that I have a thousand dollars in my pocket. All right. Now I said this is far-fetched, so use your imaginations with me. I have a thousand dollars in my pocket, and I have a burning desire to give it away to somebody. Far-fetched, I know, but this is the scenario. I mean, it's burning a hole in my pocket, and I just want to get rid of it. So let's just say that I drive over to Beverly Hills. And I find the nicest, most well-kept home in all of Beverly Hills. I go up to the door after paying off the security guy to let me go up to the door. I go up to the door and I knock and I talk to the butler and I say, you know what, I want to talk to the owner of the house. I have something I need to give them. And the owner finally comes down and I give this owner of this beautiful house a thousand dollars now he didn't do anything to earn my generosity it was completely and totally unmerited so in this instant my gift to him is a gift of or an act of grace is an act of grace now let's just suppose on the other hand still got this thousand dollars And I decide instead of going to Beverly Hills, I'm going to go to the heart of Hollywood. And I'm going to go to Hollywood and I am going to go to a very run-down, poor part of Hollywood where I know a bunch of homeless people tend to gather. And in this group, I find one person whose clothes are specifically or particularly worn out. This person has not showered in quite some time. The only food that they have eaten in the last few days has come out of a garbage can. And I go up to this person and I hand this person my $1,000. Now again, he didn't do anything to earn my generosity. It was completely unmerited. But my gift to this person would be a gift of mercy. A gift of mercy. It would be a gift of mercy because I took pity. I took pity on this miserable condition that this person was in, and I sought to help him in his time of need. And this is how it is with us and God. And the more you and I grasp the magnitude of God's mercy the more apt we will be to live in a manner that is well-pleasing to Him. So with that in mind, let us open up our Bibles to Romans chapter 12 as we look at verses 1 and 2. And again, I would just challenge you right now to, to just block out any, any distractions that might be in your head, anything that you might be thinking about, just so that you might be able to accurately hear the Word of God as it's laid out here in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, in today's text, we discover three effects of God's mercy that, while not meant to be exhaustive, will do much to aid us in our efforts to 
combat the thoughts and the practices of this age that we find ourselves living in. As we dwell on the mercies of God, we will see some effects that will naturally flow from God's mercy. Let us begin by looking at the first effect of God's mercy. And that is God's mercy motivates our worship. God's mercy motivates our worship. Look at verse 1 again. It says, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. It is here that Paul begins what many consider to be the transition point in Romans. Throughout the first 11 chapters, Paul has laid out a bunch of theology. He has laid out a bunch of truths about man and about God. And it must be noted that all practical living flows from our theology. In fact, a right view of God will do a lot to give us a right view of living or a right way of living. So having established a right view of God in the first 11 chapters, Paul is now ready to lead us to a right way of living. And there's a major transition that happens there. Therefore marks the transition that is taking place. And it does a great deal more than just simply reach back to the ending verses in chapter 11. I would say that that therefore is actually going all the way back to the very beginning, to everything that Paul has just laid out, all of the theology that he has laid out in regards to who God is. Now this therefore comes on the scene to kind of usher in this new, this new teaching, this new way of, of living, how this theology is to impact us. And so that therefore looks back to the first two and a half chapters whereby we're helped to understand the lowliness of man's position. It enables us to grasp the depths of our depravity, to see ourselves for who we really are. It helps us to, to see that... There is none righteous, not even one, that there is none who seeks after God. It helps us to see that we have turned from the creator to worship the created. This is the starting point for we must all see ourselves rightly or we will never, ever see our need for God, for a savior. Since man was lost and since man was unable to Uh, to save himself since man was not seeking after God. We find God turning the tables on man and we find God stepping in and seeking out man. We find him sending Jesus Christ into the world to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. As one commentator so aptly puts it, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, all of the work of God for man's salvation passed out of the realm of prophecy and became historical fact. We further see God's mercy as he provides this salvation to man apart from any religious ceremonies or acts. It is not by doing some ritualistic type of a ceremony that man is given this. No, it is simply bestowed on him by faith. And it is through faith that man is brought into Christ such that he is 
totally and completely justified and raised up in newness of life with Christ. And it is this, this act on God's part that now allows those that have trusted in the perfect work of God's perfect Son to have their sins completely washed away by the blood of Christ. Christ's perfect life is now credited to them such that they are viewed as perfect, just as he was perfect. But the good news doesn't stop there because then we go on to learn that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The wrath that was due man, the righteous wrath of God for man's sin, the totality of it was poured out on Christ. What should have been ours, what you and I should have experienced, Jesus Christ willingly took. And he did this because it was all part of the Father's plan. This was the Father's plan that the Son would take upon him his full wrath, the wrath that was due us. The mercy of God at times seems too good to be true. It seems unreal that a God would do so much for a bunch of rebellious, undeserving, helpless, pitiful sinners that God would be willing to do all of that doesn't seem real but you know what brothers and sisters he did he did do all of that and therefore Paul urges us he exhorts us not by any apostolic authority that he may have but simply by the mercies of God to present our bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is our spiritual service of worship. John Calvin has rightly said that men will never worship God with a sincere heart or be roused to fear and obey him with sufficient zeal until they properly understand how much they are indebted to his mercy. We need to understand who we really are. We need to understand the depths of our sin. We need to understand all that God did on our behalf to, to make a way for us to be restored, to be made right, to be justified before Him. We need to see that. We need to see God's mercy. And it should be God's mercy that motivates us to worship Him as we should. There should be nothing that would help us to turn from worldly living faster than contemplating God's mercy. And it's in response to God's mercy that the believer presents his body to God. Now, the term body that is used here is not just meant to encompass the outer man, but really it is, it is going beyond just our skin and bones. It is really kind of talking about the totality of, of who we are, this idea is summed up well by Stephen Charnock in his discourses upon, discourses upon the existence and attributes of God when he writes, We must not only have a loud voice, 
but an elevated soul. Not only a bended knee, but a broken heart. Not only a supplicating tone, but a groaning spirit. Not only a ready ear for the word, but a receiving heart. And this shall be of greater value with him than the most costly outward services offered at Gerizim or Jerusalem. In our passage, God is not calling us to sacrifice a part of our lives. He's not just calling us to offer a bit of ourselves. He is calling us to offer all that we are. Everything that makes us us, he is calling us to worship, to offer that up in worship. This is what God calls us to do. No longer are we, as Romans 6.13 tells us, to go on presenting the members of our body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. God doesn't want us doing that anymore, but instead he is calling us to present our entire beings as living sacrifices. Now, first century people were very familiar with the offering of sacrifices. You and me, not so much. We kind of have a hard time tracking with this sacrifice thing because we really didn't see it. But back then, they saw it. It was pretty commonplace to see animals offered up on behalf of people's sins. They knew what that looked like. They would have been familiar with the priest slaying the animal in a ritualistic manner, going through all the, the steps necessary for that. They would have seen the blood poured out. They would have been used to seeing that. They would have, uh, they would have been used to, to watching this sacrifice burn on the altar as it was offered up to God. But to think of themselves as being the sacrifice, that must have really stuck in their minds as they contemplated the totality of all that a sacrifice represented. How a sacrifice was considered holy in the sense that it belonged to God and and well-pleasing in the sense that it is done in accordance to God's specifications. As believers, God is calling each of us to be living holy and well-pleasing sacrifices. This is not something that is only for those that are in full-time ministry. This isn't something that is just for the pastors because they get paid to do it. No, this is something that is for everybody who calls themselves a believer in Jesus Christ. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, God is calling you to offer your entire body, everything that you are, to him as a living, holy, well-pleasing sacrifice. So whether you're a banker, a teacher, a lawyer, an accountant, whatever profession you're into, this is something that God is calling you to do. Wherever, whoever you are, whatever you do, God is calling you to live your life in such a way that it will point others to him. That it will point others to him. God is calling each of us to live a life that is fully committed to bringing him glory. How you live is to be your spiritual service of worship. And this is something that we need to understand because, you know what, it's good that you're here on Sunday. But if you just come here on Sunday 
And you go through all of the the things that we do in our service on Sunday. You sing the songs. You you listen to the message. You even take notes. You open up your Bible. You do all of these great things. If you walk out of here unimpacted by that, if you walk out of here and just live your life in a way that is, is totally contrary to what you are learning... Don't kid yourself into thinking that you are in some way worshiping God, that you are doing something that might be considered well-pleasing to God because it is not well-pleasing to God when we come and offer Him a part of us or just part of our time. God wants and demands all of us, all of us, in every aspect of our lives. No matter what we do, God is calling us to worship him through the giving of our bodies. Now, Paul uses a word here, logikos, which gets translated as spiritual, but it really means rational. In fact, most of your Bibles probably will have some type of a reference. If it doesn't actually have the word rational, it'll probably have a little footnote or a note just stating that it it should be rational. And this is a worship that includes both the mind and the heart. It is an act of intelligent worship whereby the mind is fully engaged. I came across a little quote from Epictetus, a first century Stoic philosopher, and he wrote this. He says, If I were a nightingale, I would do what is proper to a nightingale. And if I were a swan, what is proper to a swan? In fact, I am logikos, a rational being, so I must... I must praise God. To worship God with our lives is the only rational thing that we can do. When we understand who God is and we begin to grasp the magnitude of the mercy that he has, be, that he has poured out on us, it is only fitting, it is only rational that we should desire to make him great to any of those that might be on looking into our lives. As they see us walking in obedience, we should be doing everything that we can to make much of God, to exalt Him, so that the onlooking world will be drawn to Him. And like I said, we're kidding ourselves if we think that our worship is acceptable to God just because we're here on a Sunday. So much more than that, brothers and sisters. No worship is pleasing to God that is purely external or purely internal. It needs to be both. And it's God's mercy that motivates us to worship Him with all that we are, with our bodies and our minds. And the more we understand God's mercy and the love that moved Him to lavish us with it, the more we will desire to offer our lives up to Him as a living, breathing, thinking acting sacrifice something that encompasses all of us isaac watts brings this section to a fitting close with these words from his beautiful hymn entitled the wonderful cross says love so amazing so divine demands my soul my life my all that is what our worship is to be about us offering all of ourselves to God. His love demands it. His mercy demands it. 
And we need to be a people who do that. So having discovered the first effect of God's mercy, that being uh, God's mercy motivates our worship, we're now ready to look at the second effect as it appears in our text, namely that God's mercy morphs our worldview. God's mercy morphs our worldview. Picking things up in verse 2, we read this, And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In looking at the first part of this verse, the negative... The thing we are not to do, I thought that it might be helpful to look at some alternative translations so that we can maybe get a better glimpse into just what is actually being said here. Now, I will not recommend these translations as your regular reading, but they do offer us some keen insight into this, so I will share them with you. For example, in the message, we are told... Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. I like that. The New Living Translation says, Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. The Jerusalem Bible says, Do not model yourselves on the behavior of the world around you. And then there is a very well-known paraphrase of J.B. Phillips, which says, and this is probably my favorite, Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Don't let the world around you squeeze you into its own mold. Each of these translations hopefully helps us to get a glimpse into the nuance of what we are not to do. I mean, for all intents and purposes, Paul is calling us to nonconformity, is he not? He's saying, look, you have this world out there that is living their lives in a certain way, that is doing certain things that people are embracing and supporting, but do not be conformed to that. In fact, I don't want you doing anything along those lines. I want you doing the opposite. I want you living your life in such a way that you stand out from the rest of the world, that you are a nonconformist in compared to the rest of the world. This is really nothing new for the people of God, if we stop and think about it. I mean, when God spoke to the Israelites through Moses, he said in Leviticus 18.3, You shall not do what is done in the land of Egypt where you lived, nor are you to do what is done in the land of Canaan where I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. God made it perfectly clear through Moses that the Israelites were not to, to... kind of be contaminated in a sense with the culture that they were going to be around. Nothing new. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount spoke these words to his disciples regarding both the Pharisees and the Gentiles in Matthew 6, 8. He says, do not be like them. Don't be like the Pharisees. Don't be like the Gentiles. Don't be like the culture that is around you. Be different. Stand out. Be a light for me. Be salt for me. And this is what Paul's telling us here in our text. He doesn't want us to be like chameleons that are constantly adapting and changing to blend into whatever environment we might find ourselves in. Christian chameleons are not a good thing. As God's holy people, our conduct should be so radically different that we stick out like a sore thumb. And if you've ever had one, you know how much that sticks out. 
My concern for many of us is that we're trying so hard to blend in. We're trying so hard to connect with our culture that there's becoming less and less of a difference between us and the world. As citizens of heaven, according to Philippians 3.20, God is calling us not to get too comfortable here. Let us not forget that this world is not our home. This is not our permanent residence. So let's not get too comfortable here. We are to set our minds on the things above, not on the things of earth, according to Colossians 3.2. We are to remember that the world is passing away according to 1 John 2.17 and that Christ needed to come so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, Galatians 1.4. Because of these and many other truths regarding this age that we find ourselves living in, we are not to be conformed to this age. We are not to think or approach life in the same way that the world does. This is not acceptable for us as Christians. God calls us not to do it. And as if some of those other verses weren't enough, in John, 1 John 2.15, we are told to not love the world nor the things in the world. It doesn't get any plainer or simpler than that. But if many of us were to be honest with ourselves we would have to confess that we do not stand where we should in regards to loving the world. One look at our iPod playlist gives us away. One glance at our DVD Blu-ray collection reveals more than we're comfortable with. One search of our computer history tells the real story of what we're going after. Charles Spurgeon, speaking nearly 150 years ago, had this to say regarding worldliness in the church. 150 years ago. I believe that one reason why the church of God at this present moment has so little influence over the world is because the world has so much influence over the church. He goes on to say in another sermon, Put your finger on any, on any prosperous page in the church's history and I will find a little marginal note reading thus. In this age, men could readily see where the church began and where the world ended. Never were there good times when the church and the world were joined in marriage with one another. The more the church is distinct from the world in her acts and in her maxims, the more true is her testimony for Christ and the more potent is her witness against sin. Brothers and sisters, there is a lack of clarity between the world and the church. And in our effort to be relevant, in our effort to connect with our culture, many of us have lost our distinctiveness. Many have allowed the world and its way of thinking to squeeze them into its ungodly mold. Joel Beakey, in his book entitled Overcoming the World, Grace to Win the Daily Battle, makes this observation regarding worldly people. The goal of worldly people is to move forward rather than upward, to live horizontally rather than vertically. They seek after outward prosperity rather than holiness. 
They burst with selfish desires rather than heartfelt supplications. If they do not deny God, they ignore and forget him or else they use him only for their selfish ends. Worldliness is human nature without God. So let me ask you this. Do any of you know someone like this? A person who's more fixated on their financial portfolio, their position at work, or the success of their kids over and above seeking to bring glory to God in whatever they do? Do any of you know someone who seems too busy to pursue God, but not too busy so as to pursue hobbies, vacations, or sporting events? Do any of these things describe you? Are your goals more worldly focused or heavenly focused? Worldliness can come up on us rather quickly. I don't believe that anyone ever sought to make shipwreck of their faith. And yet the world is full of people that once sought to walk with God, but are now living with and for the world. Completely sold out to the things of the world. But rather than being conformed to this world, Paul Paul urges us to be transformed. And this is something that is only possible due to the merciful work of God in sending Jesus Christ into this world to redeem us from our sin. Apart from that, we cannot be transformed. This transformation is something that takes place as we submit to the Holy Spirit who is working in our lives, and it is a change that is an impossible thing apart from God's Holy Spirit who is given to only those who are in Christ, to only those who have seen their true condition and have cried out to God seeking His mercy and trusting and relying in His mercy. It should also be noted that this transformation is not something that takes place in an instant, but rather it is a process. And it is in the grammar that it helps us to see that it is a gradual transformation that is going on continually throughout the Christian's life. It is something that is to continue to happen day after day. They are to be transformed. Because of God's merciful work, we are no longer slaves to sin, as Romans 6, 6 says. We no longer have to obey sin's commands. We no longer have to do what it bids us to do. God has given us all of the resources that we need to walk in obedience. We are told in 2 Corinthians 5.17 that we are new creatures that are able to resist the influences of sin both from without and from within. New creatures. Transformed. And it's this transfer transformation that takes place because of the enabling power of the Holy Spirit and begins to renew our minds begins to change us and while Paul does not offer us any detail here as to how our minds are to be renewed the Holy Spirit testifies to the truth of God's word such that we might hear it and obey it as our minds are subjected to God's word which is 
We're told in Hebrews 4.12, living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword and piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. As our minds dwell on the word of God, we are renewed. Our entire way of thinking gets completely and utterly changed. We become transformed through the renewing of our minds, as we meditate and contemplate and drink in the truths of God's word, it begins to change us. It begins to change how we look at life. It impacts our worldview. Our worldview takes on a radical change. No longer do we think as we once thought. We begin to think rightly now for the first time through the enabling help of God's Holy Spirit through the word of God. We begin to look at things differently with the Spirit's help. And all of this is made possible by the mercy of God. Without question, God's mercy morphs our worldview. And while we still live in this age, we must keep at the forefront of our minds all that God has done on our behalf. Because of God's merciful decision to send Christ, we cannot go on living in accordance with the world. We just can't. It it would be an affront to God's mercy and to His love. His mercy... His mercy morphs our worldview. It changes how we think. It changes how we go about living and how we view life. In light of God's mercies, you and I have only one course of action that we can take. And that is to not be conformed to this world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our minds. In this section, we've learned that God's mercy morphs our worldview, which means that we're now ready to look at the third effect of God's mercy, that being... God's mercy magnifies His will. God's mercy magnifies His will. Let's look at the other half of verse 2. It says, So that you may prove what the will of God is, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, when it comes to knowing the will of God, the first thing we must do is determine which will are we trying to discern. R.C. Sproul writes, the following in his book entitled, Can I Know the Will of God? The practical question of how we know the will of God for our lives cannot be solved within, with any degree of accuracy unless we have some prior understanding of the will of God in general. Without the distinctions we have made, our pursuit of the will of God can plunge us into hopeless confusion and consternation. When we seek the will of God, we must first ask ourselves, which will are we seeking to discover? Brothers and sisters, there are basically two aspects of God's will. There is God's will of decree and God's will of command. Let us begin first by looking at God's will of decree. Now, God's will of decree, this is God's secret will. It is the will that has existed from eternity past and nothing or no one can prevent or interrupt that thing from occurring. If God has decreed it, if God has ordained it from eternity past, it will come to pass. It will come about, and there is nothing that anybody can do to stop it. It will happen. 
In the Westminster Shorter Catechism, it says, The decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he hath foreordained whatever comes to pass. And it is this will of decree that we see spoken of by the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah 46, 9 through 11. You don't need to turn there. Just listen, though. He writes, Remember the former things long past. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly, I have spoken. Truly, I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. Now, it is impossible, impossible for us to know God's secret will unless he chooses to reveal it to us through his word. As Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. Martin Luther put it well when he wrote, We must keep in view his word and leave alone his inscrutable will, for it is by his word and not by his inscrutable will that we must be guided. So when it comes to discerning or testing God's will, we are not speaking of God's will of decree, the will which has been predestined before time, the will that is set in stone, And the will that will without question come to pass. That is not what we are talking about here. Which leads us to the will that we are talking about. And that is God's will of command. God's will of command. This is God's revealed will. And it instructs us as to how we are to live. These are the things that we are to do in order to bring him glory and honor. The things that we are to do to make much of God. So that we can be set apart and bring him the glory that is rightfully His. Time really does not allow us to delve into the multitude of passages that are found regarding um, His will of command. But there are three that I would offer up to you as being fairly a fairly comprehensive listing that speaks to the entirety of the Christian life. Starting in Ephesians five seventeen through 18, we read, So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. It is God's will, it is God's will for your life that you be under the control and the influence of the Holy Spirit. This is God's command. This is His will of command for you. This is how you should live. Not being drunk, not being under the influence of anything other than God's Holy Spirit. That is God's will for your lives if you are a believer if you are a christian first thessalonians 4 3a says for this is the will of god your sanctification it is god's will for your life that you be sanctified that you continue to grow and become more and more like jesus christ this is what god has saved you for 
He will take you wherever you are at, brothers and sisters. Whatever you have done, wherever, whatever you have committed, whatever sins you have done, God will take you wherever you are at. There is nobody that is beyond God's grip of grace. But when he calls you, he does not call you to stay where you're at. But instead, he calls you to come and to follow him. He calls you to be sanctified, to become more and more like Jesus Christ. That is God's will for your life. First Thessalonians 5.18 says this, In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. It is God's will for your life that you be thankful in all circumstance at all times. And this isn't always easy, is it? To be thankful when you've just lost your job. To be thankful when your kids are maybe straying off a little bit. To be thankful when something doesn't go the way that you wanted it to go. It's not always easy. But yet it is God's will for your life that you be thankful in all circumstances at all times. God's will of command is what Paul is referring to in Romans 12 too. For this is the only will of God that we can actually test in order to see that it is good and acceptable and perfect. As you and I search the scriptures, we're able to discover the will of God. And as our text so clearly points out, the will of God is good, acceptable, and perfect. And so we're going to look briefly at each of these before we close. Let's look at the first one. The will of God is good. Even though many of us would agree with this statement in principle, I think we would again have a hard time living this out because it doesn't always feel true, does it? I mean, we can speak that to ourselves that the will of God is good, but when times are hard, when our feelings and our emotions may want something that we know is contrary to the will of God, it's hard, to, it's hard to hold on to that because our feelings, our emotions want to take us somewhere contrary to God's will. In these times, we may feel as if God's will is not good because we don't, we don't want it. We don't want God's will in this case. We want our will. We want to exhort our will onto the situation. We want to do what we want to do. We somehow think that God doesn't know what's best anymore, that we somehow now know what is best for us, and therefore we don't always think of God's will as being good when it's contrary to our own. I don't know about you, but I'm often amazed at how quickly I can convince myself that I somehow know better than God as to what is good for me. I can listen to my emotions and my feelings and get lured somewhere that I know is contrary to the word of God because it's what I want. It's what I desire. And when I do that, I need to realize what's happening there. I am saying that I know better than God that this thing that I'm wanting is really good for me because I want it. 
And yet, how many times do we find ourselves kicking ourselves for going after what we wanted as opposed to listening and following God's will of command? God's will is always good. God's will is always good, and obedience to it will always work out for our good, even if that means we don't get what we want. We need to be a people that trust God, that trust that He's good, and that His will will be for our good. The next thing we're going to look at is the will of God is acceptable or well-pleasing. And this isn't necessarily to God per se, but it is... I mean, it would certainly be true, but but really this is something that is acceptable or well-pleasing to us, okay? What Paul is attempting to teach us is the fact that when we determine to walk in obedience to God, refusing to be conformed to this world and seeking to be transformed by the renewing of our minds, we don't ever have to look back on our lives with regret or feeling as if we have somehow wasted our lives, When we have sought to walk in God's will, our lives are well-pleasing. This does not mean that they're always easy. It just means that we become satisfied with whatever God brings us because we know that He loves us and that He causes all things to work together for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. The Christian life is, is a satisfying life. And all we have to do is look at the lives of those without Christ to be reminded of this, right? I mean, how many people wanting to do their own thing, wanting to live for themselves, wanting to have their own freedom, just totally mess up their lives? And they don't learn. They just keep going after mistake, after mistake, after mistake, never acknowledging their need for God, never seeking to turn from their sin and to to honor God. And at the end of their lives, you know what? They're, They're embittered people. Because they somehow feel like they got a a bad deal out of this life. That they don't deserve their bodies to be filled with cancer. That they don't deserve the heartache or the trouble that they're going through because their kids are, are not calling them or not wanting to have anything to do with them. You know, when a Christian comes to the end of his life, he has peace. Because he knows exactly where he's going to spend eternity. He can look at his circumstances and be content because he knows the one whom he has trusted and sought to follow. This just isn't true with the unbeliever. For many, their hearts testify against them. The unbeliever's heart testifies against them as to how they've sought to live their own lives by their own rules, and they're not well pleased in their final days. Many are embittered. And finally, the will of God is perfect. The will of God is perfect. This simply means that it leads us to maturity or completeness. As we walk in obedience to the will of God, we learn that the will of God is not lacking in any respect. It is wholly satisfying. It is perfect in the sense that it is complete. Alexander McLaren, a 19th century Baptist preacher and expositor, sums it up well when he says, To know beyond doubt what I ought to do and knowing to do it seems to me to be heaven on earth, and the man that has it needs but little more. The more willing we are at working at knowing and applying the will of God to our lives, the more we will be able to taste and see that the Lord is good and know experientially that His will is good and acceptable and perfect. And we are able to do all of this, brothers and sisters, because of God's mercy 
God's mercy magnifies his will. And it helps us to walk in obedience to it. The more we come to know God's mercy, the more we will want to seek out his will. And the more we will seek out his will, the more we'll find it to be good and acceptable and perfect. This morning we've discovered three effects of God's mercy. We've learned that God's mercy motivates worship, that God's mercy morphs worldviews, and that God's mercy magnifies His will. And as you and I learn to dwell on God's mercy, it will cause us to move in a direction that is completely contrary to the age that we are living in. So let me just encourage you to not lose heart when you find yourself at odds with the world. Let me encourage you to not give in when everyone around you is saying, this is what we need to be about. When the Bible is telling you, this is what you need to be about. Let us not get so caught up in the things of the world that we lose sight of whose world this really is and the fact that we have a home in heaven awaiting awaiting us. Let us not lose heart when it looks like the world is advancing. Instead, let us remember and offer praise to the one who has seen our poor condition, the one who has seen us in utter and complete need and yet has reached down out of heaven to save us from that which we were unable to save ourselves. Let us reflect on that. Let us commit from this day forward to live as shining lights of God's mercy to such a degree that as people look at our lives, they would see not us, but God's Holy Spirit working in us and transforming us. Let us be a people that are so impacted by God's mercy that the world can't help but see the difference that is in us. And let us give all of that praise and glory and honor to God, the one who made it all possible, the one who showers us with his mercy. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, you are a merciful God. And we do just offer up our praise to you. We give you thanks for your plan to extend mercy to us, a bunch of rebellious sinners, a bunch of people that wouldn't even seek you, left to our own devices. And yet, Father, you have poured out your mercy upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ. And for that, we are eternally grateful. Help us to be a people that live in light of that great mercy. Help us to never cheapen it, but instead help us to be motivated by it. Help us to be compelled and committed to live for you in such a way that we would make much of you and the onlooking world would be drawn to you. And we would just give you all the praise and the glory. Father, I pray for these brothers and sisters in here this morning. I pray that you will just do a work in their hearts and all of our hearts so that we might rightly understand your mercy and that it might move us to live the life that you call us to live. We thank you. We praise you. 
And we offer ourselves to you as living sacrifices for your namesake. Amen.